environment, right? And rickety ladders crossing over deep crevices that if you fell into them, you know, you probably wouldn't be seen again, that sort of thing, right? This is, so these were, these were deep, dark, shadowy places that never really saw human life, never really saw much light except when you, you know, they were claustro, if you were claustrophobic, you didn't want to go here, that sort of thing. Um, that was, that was the wild tour, right? There was no light except the light that was on, uh, your headlamp. And this is, uh, as, as we finish up walking through the Ten Commandments, we really now come to the heart of it, right? The heart, and by that I mean my heart and your heart. This last commandment, uh, exposes some things. If the others haven't, this one does, right? And it's not, it's not nice. It's not presentable. There's no concession stand in this part of the cave. Uh, this is the part that uh, singer Derek Webb calls crooked deep down, right? When we, when we hear this 10th commandment, we realize that we're crooked deep down. Uh, and this is the part that not many people see, right? There aren't, there aren't many lights shining in these dark recesses of our hearts. Uh, but God sees it. Our deep brokenness is not hidden from Him. And you know why that's a good thing? He redeems hearts that are crooked deep down. The fact that God sees it, right? The fact that God's not afraid of our brokenness, even even the things that we would be afraid to share with other people, uh, God is not afraid of that. And what that means is there's there's no part of you, there's no part of your heart at which God looks at it and says, Mm, sorry, there's, there's really too much sin for me to work with here. That doesn't happen with him. And so I just want to remind us as we walk through the law that, that walking through the law can be painful, right? Uh, it exposes some things that we don't really like exposed, and sometimes it touches a wound. Uh, I heard a quote this week from, a, from an old pastor who said, uh, if we are... If we are wounded, right, if somebody has some criticism for us or uh, if we read something in the Bible that wounds us, that means that that part of us is not dead yet, right? That's part of the old man that's not dead yet. And that's what the law, that's why walking through the law can be painful because God wants us to see what he sees. God wants us to, God wants us to see in our hearts what he sees in our hearts because until we do, until we see how sinful we are, we won't really trust His saving grace. And so, um, what I want you to see this morning is what this commandment reveals as we finish up here, as we finish up the Ten Commandments. What I want us to see is that our sin really does run deep. But God's grace runs deeper still. What this commandment tells us is it talks about our coveting, as it talks about our hearts, is that our sin runs much deeper than we realized. But God's grace runs deeper still. And we're going to walk through it in these ways. First, we're going to see how what we covet exposes what we really love. And we're going to talk about that word coveting and what it means, right? But what we covet exposes what we really love. And we're going to see that coveting can only be replaced with a true love, a better love, a greater love. And then finally, that at the end of the law, we see more than anything, we see our need for a mediator, so how does covet expose what we love? In fact, what does that even mean, coveting? It's really probably not a word you use very much. 
And really, in one sense, the word coveting is simply a desire, right? A desire to get something. And in that way, it's not sinful, okay? The Bible never says there's anything wrong with desire, all right? In fact, this same word is used in Psalm 19, verse 10, to say that God's words are to be coveted more than gold. It translates that as desire, but that's what it means. God's words are to be coveted more than gold. So there are some things the Bible says that we should covet. In fact, that we need to covet. So desire, wanting something, even a strong desire, is not wrong, is not sinful. Uh, Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, when he's talking to people about worrying about money, or worrying about food, or worrying about clothing, he says, seek first the kingdom. Right? That's a desire thing. Jesus is telling us, here's a right desire to have. And so the problem is not my desires. The problem is that my desires are bent on what my neighbor has. My desires are bent on what belongs to him and to him alone. I mean, look again at the commandment. Notice it doesn't, he doesn't put a period after covet. He doesn't say, you shall not covet, period. You shall not desire, period. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. Right? There's, a, there's an object to that verb. I just lost everybody who hates grammar. Sorry. Um, so another word for this might be envy, right? Envy, jealousy, that that gnawing, empty feeling that somebody else has all the stuff that you want. And let's not even necessarily leave it at stuff, right? He mentions uh, a wife, he mentions a spouse, so has the relationship that you want, right? Envy goes far beyond our, uh, our material desires, and the opposite, so the opposite of covetousness, and Zach did a, a good job uh, for us on this from Hebrews 13, right? The opposite of covetousness would be contentment. Being content, being satisfied with what I have, who I am, who I know, right? What we suffer from is this, the, the, the old grass is greener on the other side idea, right? That somebody else always has it better. Some place always has it better. And one of the guys in Sunday school a couple weeks ago said, yeah, the grass is greener on the other side until you realize there's a leaky septic tank underneath. Uh, so we feel stuck in this pursuit of contentment, don't we? Always wanting more, thinking that once we have more, we'll be better. Thinking that if I can just get there, I'll finally be satisfied. But we don't ever get there. There's always more to have. The advertising industry is built on this. Do you know who, do you know which demographic is targeted? More, more money is made and spent on one particular demographic by the advertising industry than any other demographic. Do you know which one it is? Teenagers, right? Why? Disposable income, and I'm, teenagers, I'm sorry, not fully formed decision-making capabilities. That's just science. I'm telling you, like, the brain is not fully formed yet. Be mad at me later, but I'm just telling you, right? So, they're easy pickings, right? Right? 
Uh, and they, but that industry is built on this weakness. Now, I'm not saying that advertisers and marketers are dishonest or evil. We have a choice in how we respond to those messages. But my point is this, that advertising simply exploits what the Tenth Commandment already has exposed. We are not content, and so we covet. We are not content, so we covet. Where does this, uh, where does this come from, this lack of contentment that leads to coveting? Paul puts it like this in Colossians 3.5. This is in the New Testament. Paul's writing a letter to his friends in Colossae, and he's telling them what, uh, what life, what new life in Jesus looks like. And he tells them this. He said, covetousness is idolatry. Wait, what? Covetousness is idolatry? I thought, I thought idolatry was somewhere over here having to do with like my worship of God. But what is, what is coveting my desire for uh, a thing or a person that doesn't belong to me? What does that have to do with my worship? And Paul says, they're connected. They're the same thing that, that, that the reason we're coveting, that actually coveting is worshiping another God. Tim Keller, a uh, pastor in our denomination, puts it this way. In case, uh, let, let's just to kind of get an idea of how we would define idolatry. Keller says this, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Do you see now how coveting and idolatry are connected to each other? That when I, when I covet, if I'm saying, if I just have them, or if I just know them, or if I just get that, I'll finally be satisfied. Well, that's what Keller says, that's, that's an idol, right? That is idolatry, because I'm pinning all my hopes and happiness, my satisfaction on a thing or a person, and that's called worship. When I, when I lay down everything I have at, something's, at the foot of something, that is worship. This quote is in our bulletin from Tim Keller, and it summarizes it greatly. The unhappiness and disorder of our lives are caused by the disorder of our loves. Did you catch that? The unhappiness and disorder of our lives are caused by the disorder of our loves. We don't love the right things. I'm not saying we don't love good things. But we don't love the right things in proper order, and therefore it disorders everything else. Our loves are out of order. We're misshapen. So just, I want you to take a minute, and I want you to answer these questions, kind of using Keller's definition there of what an idol is. I want you to take a minute and ask these questions. What is that for you? What is that thing or that person that if you lost it, um, Life would feel hardly worth living. If I have it, my life finally has meaning. What is that for you? What lesser loves have you put out of order? Fill in this blank. Having blank gives me 
significance. If I only could get blank, I would finally be satisfied. Go ahead and identify that for you. It's important before we, as we kind of take the next step, if we're going to put our loves in order, first we kind of have to figure out what is it that we're loving? What, what, have, we, what have we put out of place? What is the 10th commandment exposing in my heart and in your heart? And now, what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Coveting can only be replaced with true love. So how do we, how do we get there? One philosophy says this. Suppress your desires, cover them up, don't listen to them, don't let them control you. It's called stoicism, okay? It's an old philosophy. But it says, just cover your desires up, suppress your desires, hold them down. So we're going we're gonna to try that, we're going to go for that. I want you to try it right now, stop coveting. I mean it, stop, stop it, ladies. She, she is not the, stop coveting the mom who has it all together, whose crafts always look Pinterest worthy. Stop it. Right now, stop it. Guys, stop envying the guy who has it all together. Stop, stop envying the guy who's smarter than you. Who's better looking than you. Stop, stop envying the body, right? Or the mind. Or the perfect family. Just stop it. How'd that go for you? <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Did it actually did it actually get worse? Right? That as soon as I said stop coveting, it came right to mind, didn't it? It intensified. So we can't make ourselves just stop. Right? We can't we can't tell ourselves stop desiring. We'd like to think we're rational creatures, but we're emotional creatures, right? We, we love what we love. We are, we are, we are driven by our desires and we cannot, we cannot simply make ourselves content. Now, the opposite of that philosophy would say, just take it. Whatever your desires are, go with it. Follow, follow your heart. It's Disney theology, right? Uh, just, just go for it. Now, there's enough people in the room, I know your stories, and I know that you've, you've walked that road. And I know that if you were up here, you could tell us how that goes. How that philosophy, where that philosophy takes you, the dark roads you go down when you, when you chase every desire that you have. So that philosophy doesn't work either. We can't make ourselves content, and we can't, and, and if we try the opposite direction, we, we find that we're never satisfied. We'll keep trying to satisfy ourselves to death. So there must be another way. Now that same guy who said that coveting is idolatry, his name was Paul. Uh, and he also failed at coveting. In fact, of all the sins that could trip a person up, this one tripped him up. So that's right. Uh, this is not simply a failure of the weak, right? This, this guy was a, the, one of the great leaders of the early church. He wrote most of the New Testament. 
which is the second part of the Bible. I mean, if anybody, surely anybody had it all together, it would be Paul. But Paul had a problem with coveting. So uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 943. Romans chapter 7. I just want to, we're going we're gonna to see how Paul dealt with this. Romans 7, I'm going to read starting in verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's a long passage. Here's what Paul's saying. He thought he was doing pretty well. Kind of chugging along. And if you'd have known Paul in his early days, you'd be like, man, that's a, that's a righteous man. He knew his Bible. He knew what it meant to be a good guy. But then, sin came alive as the law laid on his heart. He realized he was a lawbreaker and not a law keeper. He thought he was doing well until the law against coveting exposed his sin and made him see that he was a dead man. And that's what the law does. That's what the law exposes our sin. And we often don't like what we see. Let's keep going. Look at verse 15. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Does that conflict resonate with you at all? I don't understand myself. Why do I keep doing what I know I'm not supposed to be doing? You're not alone in that struggle. Verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Wretched man that I am, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Here's the first step in dealing, not just with coveting, but any time the law begins to penetrate and reveal the rough, hard, sinful parts of our lives. Before we move any further in dealing with those deep issues, we have to be with Paul. We have to admit that we have those deep issues, right? You have to know that you have cancer before you can seek cancer treatment. And so Paul, Paul is, 
Paul is just bearing his soul here, acknowledging who he is, the conflict that he feels inside, that he wants to do right, but he always does wrong. And that's called confession and repentance, right? Seeing your sin and turning from it to God. That's why we build that in as part of our worship service. That's key to the Christian life, right? The Christian life is repentance and faith, repentance and faith. We confess our sin and we trust in the Lord Jesus, right? And so we build that into every Sunday service because it's, we have to do that. We have to acknowledge that there's a deep issue that we have that has to be brought before the Lord. So we confess and we repent, but what does it look like to turn to Jesus, right? Paul leaves off with this question in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Then he goes on. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what is, what is Paul saying there? Right, He goes from saying, wretched man that I am. Who, I can't help myself. Who can help me? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus has done what I could not do. Jesus has kept the law that I could not keep. Where I have failed, he has succeeded. Therefore, before the judgment seat, he is not guilty. And that means when I come to him by faith and I stand before the judgment seat, I get to hear his verdict. Knowing that I'm as guilty as can be, I hear the verdict that Jesus Here's not guilty. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. By the way, just as a side plug, in two weeks we're going to start a new uh, Sunday school class for adults in the fellowship hall. And we're going to unpack that phrase. We're going to spend several weeks unpacking that phrase, in Christ Jesus. Alright? So, um, just so you know, that's coming up. So, Paul confesses his problem and runs to his Savior. Jesus does what I cannot do and then gives me his spirit so that I can walk in newness of life. So that my desires are changed. So that I learn to love what I should love and learn to hate what I don't have to love anymore. So the secret to being content is not to stop coveting, not to stop desiring because we can't. The secret to being content is desiring what your heart was really made for in the first place. You weren't made to be satisfied in houses. You weren't made, this is gonna come as a shock, we're pro-marriage here. We are, we are big fans of marriage, we wanna promote strong marriages. You were not made to be ultimately satisfied in marriage. You weren't made to be satisfied in the love of another person. You weren't made to be satisfied in the accumulation of possessions. You were made to be satisfied in God and in God alone. 
And the only way that that satisfaction comes to you is when you come to Christ. Jesus himself is what satisfies. And once we have Jesus, we begin to learn from him what contentment look like. Right? He sacrificed his contentment, his joy, so that you and I could know contentment in him. Augustine, a church leader from the 4th century, put it this way. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Until they find rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Going back to Exodus chapter 20. I want you to see how the end of the law drives us to our need for a mediator. And this is how we'll close. I'm going to read verse 18 through, verses 18 through 21. Now when all the people, this is after all the Ten Commandments have been spoken out loud by God from the top of Mount Sinai to the people at the bottom, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. See, the law, the impact that it has on the people, they're terrified. God has spoken these ten words, and, what, and what's the response of the people? Don't say any more. Stop. We can't bear it. We can't bear it. We need, we need someone to bear it for us. Moses, we want, we want you to speak to God and you speak to us. But we cannot bear to continue hearing His Word. Friends, that's, that's how the law, in one sense, that's how the law should leave us. Especially, especially if you're not in Christ and you hear these, you hear these laws, that ought to drop on you like a weight. So that you say, I can't bear it anymore. I can't bear it anymore. This is too much. Isn't it beautiful what, what God sets up, even here with Moses? Somebody has to go into the thick darkness. Somebody has to approach God's holiness. Somebody has to go up the mountain to hear from God for the benefit of the people. Somebody has to be between. Somebody has to be a mediator. Friends, Jesus is that mediator. He is the greater Moses. He is the one who steps into the thick darkness of God's terrifying, holy wrath so that you don't have to. Because you can't. My coveting heart, your coveting heart, we cannot approach the mountain. There is no amount of sacrifice, there is no amount of Bible reading that could get us up the mountain if we tried. Islam is wrong. There are, there are not simply five pillars you can do to approach God. 
In fact, every world religion is wrong. There's no way to get up that mountain, friend. No, you need someone who's been at the top of the mountain to come down and get you. And that's Jesus. And He's the only hope for coveters, for liars, for thieves, for murderers, and for idolaters. So if you feel the weight of sin this morning, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus and be forgiven and be made new. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the table, as we come to enjoy communion together, Lord, would you would you remind us of our need for Christ? Would you remind us that we don't we don't take communion, we don't listen to sermons in order to gain your favor? Uh, We do it because you favor us already and you've given us your word and your sacraments as means of grace. So God, would you take now this bread and this juice, common bread, common juice, and would you set it apart for that holy and supernatural and mysterious purpose uh, used by the Spirit to edify us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. Just set it in the prayer. Uh, This table is not for perfect people. Uh, This table is not for people who have checked all the right boxes. This table is for people who are in Jesus. This table is for people who have, who are, who acknowledge their sinners and acknowledge the great mercy of Jesus. So it's not the table for just this church. It's not the table of just our denomination. It's Jesus' table. And all who are in Jesus are invited to come. If you are in Christ, this meal is for you. But it comes with a warning. If you are not in Christ, this meal is not for you. If you have not believed on the Lord Jesus, then you and are not a part of His body, then it actually harms you to partake of His body. That's what the Scriptures tell us. And so we just simply warn that if you are not in Christ, let the elements pass you by. There's no shame in that. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus or coming to Jesus, that invitation stands open. And I want you to talk to me or any one of the men uh, that you'll see uh, serving communion here in just a minute. All right? So let me invite the elders to come on down and uh, we'll get ready to serve the table. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, was eating the last meal with his disciples, and he took the bread, and he broke it, and he told his friends, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. If you will, hold the, uh, hold the bread and we'll eat it together uh, like you would in a family meal.
the body of the Lord Jesus given for you, take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, uh, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks for it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never thirst. And so, the blood of the Lord Jesus, crucified, buried, and risen, given for you, take and drink.
Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh Lord, would You help us to live and rejoice in that reality. That we are more sinful than we could imagine and yet more loved and forgiven than we could possibly dare to dream. And the cross is proof of that. So would you help us to live in light of that? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond to the Lord through giving. Jesus, I my cross have taken All to leave and follow Thee Destitute, despised, forsaken Thou from hence my all shall be
That last song we sung uh, is, is really the song of the content. Uh, if you would study contentment in Jesus, then I encourage you to look up the lyrics to that song. Oh, were not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. There, Jesus, as long as you love me, there is no grief that can really harm me. And on the other side, oh, were not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. Jesus, if there's any joy outside of you, I won't be charmed by that. All joys find their true place with an ultimate joy in Jesus. And that written by a man whose father had abandoned him and sent him off to boarding school and didn't want anything to do with him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that the gospel does. Now receive God's blessing from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And God's people said, Amen.